Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kave. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh... On today's show, we have Dr. Stephen Bergman, otherwise known as Dr. Samuel Shem, the author of The House of God, a seminal medical novel. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kabe. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. Joe, I'm going to skip the pleasantries today because it's kind of an important episode. We have a very special guest on today. And uh, he wrote a book called The House of God. Have you heard of this book, Joe? You know, I've been hearing about it uh, since we've been podcasting the last two years. So, But uh, go ahead. It is, it is the basis of our show's title. Lizzie, how would you... Um, describe this book, The House of God, that came out in 1978? I mean, I read it probably 20 years ago, and it just highlights kind of the grueling nature of medicine at that time in the 70s, and how, you know, the interns and residents were just taken advantage of in this way, you know, working all day and all night with little respect for their outside life and trying to cope, you know, being very work-oriented and not patient-oriented. And that's what I remember, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty important book because I think before it, there wasn't really any book that kind of showed that real gritty side of medicine. It was all sort of romanticized, idealized, these doctors in their ivory towers, their like nicely pressed white coats. 
And this book really sort of showed, The House of God really showed what was really going on with these interns during their training process. And you read it very recently. So I feel like maybe you have a more unique perspective because I certainly read it maybe in medical school, I think, or right before. So I want to know, you know, your perspective having just read it recently. Yeah, you know, uh, I think it's a book that you can only read if you're in the medical profession at two times. I think you either read it well before you decide to go to medical school and go through your training because, you know, at least at that time, it, it was a very, it's still difficult. It's always going to be difficult, but it really sort of showed you the reality of the training process, how it dehumanizes both patient and doctors. To some degree, I think it's getting better, but that's still part of it. Or you read it like I did, which is well after your residency. Because I think if you were to read this book during your internship, um, it would be hard because it, it's funny, it's a satire, it's a great book, and I really enjoyed it uh, on some level, but it's heavy. And parts of it talk about a lot of hard things about internship. Everyone who goes through their internship and to some degree residency, which is the, the year or two after your internship, but everyone goes through some slight psychosis. You're not sleeping well. You're kind of at some level depressed. There's this general malaise because you're always on call and you're not, you know, your hours, even though they're better now, it's still tough. So it talks about a lot of that. It talks about a lot of the darker sides of it, physician suicide, um, drug, alcohol abuse, that sort of stuff. So I think it would be a challenge to read it during your internship. But that being said, reading it now, you know, it, it really, uh, it, it really was interesting to hear someone put to paper some of the thoughts that I think every intern has when you're doing it. Um, so do I don't you, want to overstate it, but it, it's, it's a pretty big book. Do you think that if you had read it before you became a doctor, it would have influenced you in some way? Or do you see it as an isolated? Do you think, I mean, it's hard to figure that out now, but can you isolate it as a fiction and maybe a bit of a hyperbole, you know, of, of reality? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of it is exaggerated, but I think a lot of bad stuff happens in internship that probably wasn't thrown into the book either. So I think in some levels, it over-exaggerates things. In some levels, it probably does not. So um, it, I am glad I didn't read it beforehand because there was a part of me that just went into internship kind of dumb. Yeah. And I was kind of like, all right, this is what you do. You do it. You get it. You're done. You're done. You're done. You're over with it. I wasn't overthinking too much of it. Yeah. That's how medicine is a lot. You have to just go through the motions it's you have to do these things and if you stop too much to think about what you're doing sometimes <laughs> you'll cry you'll you'll it'll, it'll break you so you kind of just have to to put your head down and get through things and that's kind of how it was for me i'm kind of glad i wasn't overanalyzing it yeah and being naive to some experiences ignorance is bliss because if you told me when i was 20 or 22 or whenever i started medical school that i was about to embark upon a 10-year journey of training and learning and and loans and debt or being underpaid as a resident i don't i don't know that many of us would start that path you know you have to do it in baby steps i think is really a way to approach many things in life not just medicine so joe it it goes through the story of these um this group of interns um and the characters you're going to hear about like roy uh chuck fats these are all characters in the book we'll discuss it with shem well then, Fuck. and then Shem is going to come on the show and talk to us about his next book, which is coming out in a few weeks called Man's Fourth Best Hospital, where he talk. I mean, it's a nice contrast over the 40 years. He talks about how medicine has changed and there's corporate takeover and doctor's times are really occupied by 
computers and he talks about how patients are constantly asking which one's my doctor, which one's my doctor, you know, which attests to the cultural change of like shift working more towards shift work. Like we've talked about, you know, you're there for eight hours or 10 hours where when we trained, you never knew how long you were going to be there for. And he talks really about how doctors are trying and his life now is about how to connect to patients or reconnect to patients and reconnect to the meaning of medicine. So I, I should say this also about the, the book, though. It's uh, it is dark. It is heavy. It is um, it is sort of the grittier aspect of medicine. But there's a character in the book who's talking to an older doctor and the older doctor says to him, you know, this is hell what you're going through, but you're going to look back upon this year and you're going to think it was the best year of your life. And it's a little crazy and you kind of laugh at it in the book. But at the same time, it's, I don't want to paint totally a bleak picture of internship because I did forge some of my best friendships during that time. Um, some of the people I'm closest to, and we did have fun. You know, we did, we did have go out and do, you know, Joe, you were there for a lot of it. You, you saw it. Yeah. So, you know, we worked hard, but then we partied hard too. And, and so there was, there is some of that as well. And they talk about it in the book, but I, you know, I, I certainly don't want to paint too bleak a picture about uh, what happens during internship. Yeah. I mean, there is something wonderful and we've talked about it on the show before. There's very few experiences life in life where you are so immersed with a group of people. You know, I think being in a band, we talked to Sharky Logana about that. I think going to war and your military compatriots, you know, is like that. And I think residency and internship are like that. And there's something really special and gruesome and gritty about the whole thing. Yeah. Joe, tell us about your recent experience as a patient. And did you feel any of the grittiness? Yeah. Everything you guys are saying I'm I'm reflecting on right now is so nail on the head. I, I had a, fishing accident about a week ago where I accidentally stabbed myself when uh, trying to cut up some bait. (laughs) Long story short, uh, ended up going to the ER, good Sam, and I hadn't been in an ER for over 20 years, and one contrast that I noticed right away, you know, back in the day... Is that the right word? One contrast. But I like the way you said it. I prefer contrast. Okay. It's like like striped bass. Exactly. (laughs) The contrast. I I love your contributions to the show. Please continue. Okay. Continue. Thank you. Um, One thing I noticed right off the bat, almost all the medical staff, the doctors, the assistants, the nurses were almost all women. And it was a really pleasant surprise. I mean, 20, 25 years ago. Most of those folks would be male, typically. And just to see the change in such a short period of time was just a testament to feminism and the positive impact that I was actually seeing firsthand. And I have to give a shout out to the three people who helped me. Dr. Gupta was great. Kieran and V, um, they were just so empathetic, but also professional, confident. They knew what they were doing. And the service was just great. And one other thing I wanted to share with that is you know, I think every person should should visit an ER just to be there and just experience it. I saw some horrible things, some, a man who was just so hurt and screaming. And it really kind of brings people down to reality is and in, in increases human respect, I think, if, if everyone was able to see that what I saw. So it was a pretty cool experience in that way. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, in the House of God, you know, that, they cover a lot of that. Yeah. But it sort of takes a different uh, look at it because it looks through the view of these interns and that are seeing that every day, all day. 
some a lot of which they see as disease that they can't fix or cure and how demoralizing that can be and how difficult that situation can be so they so they that that actually kind of ties in and actually it'll be interesting to hear from Shem the author of this book how sort of things have changed over time particularly in terms of women in medicine no that's great and I'm looking forward to reading it and the new book um, I have just one question to you doctors um, how do you guys hack it <laughs> how do you hack how do you separate the emotion from doing the job you mentioned earlier how you can't really overthink things you have to just go through the motions i was there for an hour and i was like bawling my eyes out just mm-hmm. seeing some of these hurt people and yeah. i really have a new appreciation for people who can do the job it's just inspiring almost so. i mean that's just that's a really good question and we should probably have a palliative care doctor or an icu doctor who deal with death Every day. I mean, I don't think Kaveh, I know Kaveh and I don't see it every day, but it's really hard to tell someone you have cancer. It's untreatable. You know, we, we do experience that. But it, you know, it's hard. It's, it is about human connection. And I think that having, you know, we've both been doctors for about 10 years. And I feel like now in the last few years and doing the podcast, I also have just a newfound respect for the patient as a person. You know, I don't think the first few years you have the perspective to remember about the, you know, the connection and talking about suffering and talking about someone's joys and, and pain, you know, we're always focused on how do I treat the disease? How do I get them out of the hospital? How do I get them out of the office? You know, cause you're, you have another patient waiting, you know, so yeah. you do, it's very hard to connect with someone in the moment and also think about your next patient. And that's, you know, practice. That's why we call it the practice of medicine. You have to learn how to balance it and, you know, being your true self is something we talk about that gives you more meaning in the job. But there's also maybe a wall that you have to put up at times. And, you know, patients need boundaries. And it's really hard because you don't want to necessarily cry with the patient every visit, you know? Right. Yeah, you have to compartmentalize to some degree. Uh, what one psychiatrist told me, I asked this one psychiatrist who sort of worked with very difficult patients who are in extreme mental anguish and... Um, they weren't all successes. And I asked him, like, how do you deal with it? And he told me, you know, you have to learn to really suck the marrow out of those wins. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Like, you could approach it one of two ways. You could either make yourself sort of a flat emotional landscape, not let anything sort of get you too high or too low. But that might be kind of hard for some people. It'll be hard for me. Um, and so when you aren't like that, you and you have a victory, you have a success, you savor those moments too. I think that helps a lot. Um, and uh, just like Lizzie was saying, I think an important part of it is being yourself. And sometimes that means being sad. So sometimes you are going to be sad. Great perspective. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, um, before uh, our, our guest comes on, let me just give a quick shout out to our uh, Twitter page at The House of Pod. Like us there, follow us there, whatever the kids call it. Also at Instagram at The House of Pod. If you're on Facebook, find us there. It's a great way to communicate with us and tell us what kind of guests you want. Uh, thanks to uh, Nadim for helping with the uh, production of the show. Thanks to Joe and Lizzie for editing. Uh, stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Dr. Stephen Bergman, otherwise known as Shem. Today on the show, we have Dr. Stephen Bergman, otherwise known by his pen name, Dr. Samuel Shem. He is the author of the play Bill W. and Dr. Bob. 
and he's written books like Mount Misery and most famously The House of God, which, correct me if I'm wrong, has gone on to sell about 3 million copies, has been ranked by Publishers Weekly as the second greatest satire of all time. And this book has essentially been considered required reading for doctors since it came out in 1978. For our readers who haven't read it, the book follows a medical intern and his uh, colleagues, his friends, at a pretty lightly disguised version of uh, Beth Israel Hospital over the course of their internship. And it really put a spotlight on how dehumanizing the uh, medical training process could be, both to patients and to the doctors. So its cultural impact, like for example, the name of this show, cannot be overstated. So we're really uh, grateful that you came on today. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Stephen Bergman. Uh, good, but uh, Berg, this isn't Bergman talking. Oh, this is Dr. Shem? No, it's Shem. Just Shem. Check. Just Shem. Just, just Shem, check. Since you wrote this book, since you wrote The House of God, you've also talked about the power of uh, connection to heal and the importance of empathy. Now you're teaching at NYU. Do you right. find that you can teach things like empathy? Is that something you can teach? Can you teach people how to have a connection? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, a single person like me as a teacher um, can't teach as well as, you know, humanity in their lives or in their professions. Um, everybody, well, not everybody, Trump, Trump never went through this stage of uh, development. You know, he's <laughs> still down in the... Uh, slime mold, sort of. <laughs> but um, everybody has chances to be in an empathic connection, in a connection, and if you're lucky, you know, you have good, good parents or good teachers or stuff like that, there's a great gender difference in, uh, in, uh, in, in uh, the childhood of men and the childhood of women. Uh, so that women are much more valued for their good connections, and men are much more valued for their self, mm -hmm. for themselves. Yeah. Um, that if you get someone during a time of their suffering, especially, um, they can learn empathy. And there's no greater s suffering in medicine than the internship year, the first oh residency God. year. So yes. I've seen it. Yeah. You teach, but it's hard to say, how do you teach it? Well... If you're a teacher or a resident who's instructing these people, you you always try to point out um, how important it is to be connected to patients, to your own experience. One of the things I say in the new book, um, or I don't say it, one of the characters, the fat man says it, is that um, connection comes first. And what that means is if you're admitting a new patient, and uh, you want to get the history, you want to get them to tell you about what's wrong, if you connect, you'll hear the whole story. Yeah. If you don't connect, you won't hear anything. Yeah. And the other thing is, nobody ever really gets it right the first time, you know, connection with somebody. It always goes wrong. Think of your loved ones or spouses or whatever. You're always screwing it up. Yeah. So that even saying we are in a disconnect is a connecting statement. And one of the things I've helped to do with, with medical students and doctors, I say you have to you, you start using the we. Don't get into an IU. Start using the we, like saying to a patient, a surgeon saying to a patient, well, I did the test, 
let's talk about what we're going to do about this. Yeah. Right. Let us. We did the test. Let us. We do. And if you do that, people start talking. You know, language dictates feeling. Sometimes you, you, you get people using the we. And, and the patient will say, well, you know, I think we should. You try it. Try a we, the we with people in your life. You know, you say a we. If you put that out to, to concretize that there's a relationship here, an empathic one usually, if you're doing it, they'll come back with a we. Try it. Yeah, well, talking, I said talking the, too much. You talk. W- well, <laughs> once once when my wife was pregnant, as we talked about, I said we're expecting a baby, and she said no, we're not. But other than that, with patients, yeah, we totally see the importance of that connection. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about the connection and empathy and addressing and attending to someone suffering and how that can expedite an office visit or an interaction and actually lead to healing as opposed to focusing on the numbers and the CT scan and everything. And if you actually listen, it does reduce probably time and cost and creates a more intense, important relationship. And what happens in the house of God is that because this uh, power comes down from the big hierarchy onto the interns, they get isolated. They get isolated from each other. They can't keep the friendships, number one. Number two, each of them got isolated from their authentic experience of the system itself, right? Thinking that I'm crazy for thinking this is crazy. And the last thing, which is relevant to what I said before about the new limit on hours, we never saw our loved ones or family outside the hospital. Yeah. You know, we were there all the time. And now it's really interesting for me to see all these years later at NYU Med, where I'm, you know, I'm a professor of humanities, um, they have a whole different life. The medical students, you know, still work hard. But once you get into your internship and residency, you know, they go home. I mean, that's the good news. I mean, that's really the good news. And in fact, it's led to to students shifting what used to be the popular uh, residencies. It used to be, you know, medicine, surgery, all this. Now, the the top the top uh, choice in residencies are things like emergency medicine hospitalist and uh anesthesia yeah because there's no patient there's no continuous patient contact they have a life that's what they'll say well i wanted to have a life the problem with that is a big problem with that is that continuity of patient care uh really has gone down the tubes there are tremendous problems in fact in the novel man's fourth best hospital i start the chapter one chapter in this uh in the hospital where uh, uh, there's a quote of a patient saying, where's my doctor? Who's my doctor? And it's night, and the hospitalists are at work. I call them the nocturnalists, because their shift is always in the, you know, in the night hours, you know, or sepulchrists, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, these, do you know about hospitalists? Yeah. We do. We've talked yeah. about it these on the show, to mostly to explain to Joe, um, and I guess that there are people who specifically do night shifts, and I've, we've also used the word nocturnalist as well. So, yeah, um, they stay in the hospital and take care of the inpatient hospital patients and not the outpatients. So, yeah, by definition, they're shift workers, like you said, anesthesia and ER doctors, and they have set hours, and, you know, they leave at set times, so it does help foster extracurricular life and activities. Right, right. And at night, 
the most asked the most asked question from any patient is who's my doctor (laughs) yeah reviews have said is this is very important for the 2020 election because i talk about what's wrong and then i talk about how to how to change it basically and how to change it is guess what uh you know, you squeeze the money out of medicine, out of the machines. You can't you can't tie insurance payments to codes. You know, get them out of there, and that will happen if we have a public uh, national health healthcare system. Because doctors are are going crazy. You know, three doctors a day now commit suicide. They, it used to be only one till recently, and all of the burnout things basically. Uh, goes back to the introduction of the EMR. Studies have shown that, you know, historically. So what do we do? Well, we doctors have the power. Without us, you know, there's no medicine. I mean, have you ever heard when somebody falls down in a theater, a shout go up, is there an insurance executive in the house? No, (laughs) you know, we do the work. We have to ally, which we never have done. We have to ally with nurses, other healthcare professionals, and patients who are getting screwed by this system, as you know, um, to resist this. Yeah. And, it, and, and that's a huge number of people. You describe really well sort of this gaslighting that happens to interns when they're going through the process uh, of sort of being led to believe that what they're doing is totally normal. And I was myself right at that cusp who did his first year of training before there was an 80-hour work restriction. So yeah. I, I kind of saw that change. And a big part of that change, you know, is that it is now shift work to a large degree of taking care of people in the hospitals. A hospitalist comes in during the day. They take care of the patient for a couple hours, a long shift maybe. But then they leave at night. Someone else comes in. Sometimes two or three doctors touch base on the same patient or care for the same patient during one week. So it can be very challenging for patients. I think that's something that we are still um, trying to figure out in medicine. Uh, yeah. I, your, your book definitely uh, helped with that process of, of changing from the sort of the grueling hours that were there, the, the nonstop work limitations and or non-limitations. Um, but it took a long time. I mean, your book came out the the year I was born and the change oh, oh God. The, and the change didn't happen until, you know, I was in my internship. Uh, but I have another, I have a, another question for you about the language. Cause we talk a lot about the language of doctors on this show and yeah. your book incorporates language that has since become really part of the common medical lexicon. But how much of those terms like gomers, turfing, buff the charts, how much of that preexisted? How much of that came from the book? I mean, I have no doubt that even if it preexisted, it didn't become like nationally known and, and popularized until the book, but how much of that was pre-existing language that you heard? Uh, it's a little hard to remember, you know? I mean, a couple of them for sure were in the lingo when I got there. Right. Um, you know, go, the word, using the word gomers was certainly, I didn't invent that. That's been in the lingo for, for a while. So I think sorry, I did for, it. just for a sec, for our listeners, Gomer means get out of my emergency room. And we, we want Joe to understand in our listeners that that's one of these patients that are probably older, bedridden. You feel like they have no hope. And using the word Gomer is a very dismissive, insensitive, almost like inhumane way to describe 
a patient and it evokes all this just hopelessness. It's really disgusting. Now, now we would consider it really unprofessional, but it was totally something we all used 10 years ago, 20 years ago, clearly 40 years ago. Sorry. Well, it, we would, we would, it's still considered unpre, unprofessional as it should be. But here's the thing. We never, ever mentioned that in public. This was all in closed door rooms or when, you know, whatever. Right. It Locker was, room talk. There's a... And there's a and when there's a, a scene in the House of God, one of my favorites, where Barry comes in to see what's going on to drive him so crazy, and she hears this language, and she sees the joking around. I think she she uh, she really is disgusted by this. Yeah. The the thing that he says is, do you think that parents want to know what teachers are saying about their kids? Right. You know. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So that was very strict. I don't know if that was your thing too. Yeah. No, we've we've totally had that experience as ourselves. Like, yeah. I'm yeah. we've talked about on the show where I've discussed some language, you know, with uh, a, a girl that I was dating at the time who was not in medicine, and and I used the term called circling the drain, which meant the patient was going down the hill for our listeners, or or it was fading fast and having uh, lots of health problems that were going to eventually kill the patient. And I remember the look on this person's face was just yeah. shock and disgust. Hey, Sheb, uh, this is Joe. As, as uh, Lizzie and Kavi mentioned, I'm, I'm a patient, and hearing this, um, you know, this type of language of circling the drain, she's trying to die on us, Gomer, is there any sort of danger to, to, to using that language, even if the patient or family member is not in the room? You know, people who use that hasten death quite often and create a huge problem for patients. So it's basically... Breaking the connection. I mean, if you if you have a good connection and you feel for the patient, you're not going to say that, especially since there's no evidence that it's accurate. So, um, yeah, I think that's off bounds. Do you feel like you're much more appreciated now than you were when the book uh, first came out? Well, there, when it came out, there was a split. The older doctors didn't relate to what I was writing at all. And they hated me, and they did na- really quite nasty things. Uh, I guess you're referring to the people at Harvard, but why Why would it be older doctors? Because they, they went through it. They just didn't like your kind of uh, criticism of the culture. Your, your, is that what the yeah. issue was? Yeah, yeah, it was a split. The older doctors, it didn't, it didn't capture their experience. The, young, the guys my age, and a few women, there weren't many of them, the guys my age, uh, this was like, oh, yeah, you know, this is the truth. This is real. This is what we went through. Yeah. And the, the book with, had terrible publishing history, you know, no real reviews, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the publisher didn't believe in it. And it flew out of the stores. It just flew out of the stores by word of mouth. Hmm. And it never stopped. Yeah. Um, and so fast forward. Um, so NYU called. I went. And I found it to be a remarkable institution in the sense that where Harvard Medical School is very much about self-achievement, NYU Medical School is about connection. It really is. It's really about, you know, working in a good connection with other people. The self is tuned down quite a bit. And, you know, they have Bellevue, which is a 900-bed public hospital that uh, 
that never turns a patient away. So that's service. So it's sort of between com competition and, at Harvard and service at NYU. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I couldn't figure out why it was such a good school, you know, in terms of kindness. Yeah. And when I got there, I would spend a night in the emergency room at Bellevue. It's a horror show. And the, about 3 a.m., this uh, uh, Hispanic uh, guy came to, you know, empty the trash bins, and he wasn't surly. He was talking mm -hmm. to the nurses. He was there. He was cool. It was a, a night job, but it was good. And that's. And then I wondered why did this happen? How could you get a forty-seven thousand person organization on this mission, really? And guess what? It was because the top three people were refugees from the House of God. The top three people at the institution at New running NYU. running NYU Medical School. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, so 7,000 people, they, they were abused the way I was. Two of them were in my class. Yeah. I was abused as I was, and they were not going to continue the cycle of abuse, right? Yeah, that's great. First of all, I want you to know I trained at NYU, and I have, and everyone who I know from there, because, you know, we keep in touch a lot with a lot of these people, we all have such a strong affection for Bellevue. It's just such a special place. But yeah. um, you're saying that NYU in your experience, and hopefully more and more hospitals are, I hope it's contagious and it's not just isolated to one or two institutions, but that there's a lot more kindness and connection and hopefully empathy. And on our show recently in particular, we've been trying to highlight women in medicine. Do you think that's maybe part of it as well? Because you specifically talk about the fact that you know, boys, men in their culture and their education are not encouraged to foster the empathy and the nurturing and connections. They're, they're more encouraged historically to focus on their own personal achievements and themselves. And yet yeah. women are encouraged to foster these connections. Do you think that that's part of the changing culture in medicine Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a hundred percent. Um, it's a big topic, and we don't have time to go into it, or else I'll never get to man's fourth. <laughs> um, but um, absolutely right, uh, and and good for them. I mean, it's these are not genetic differences, mind you. Right. Uh, men tough. and women come into as babies. They still have, they have this desire. This, this is socialization and can be changed. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, uh, I, you know. That, that's one of the really good things that's happened in medicine, the best thing. And in fact, in the new novel, uh, I finally reached a parity with women and men in the situation they're in. I'm so happy. I worked real hard to uh, do that. That's uh, great. Parity in numbers uh, in, the, in the clinic. Let, let, let me get to, uh, but you're absolutely right. That's, I, can't, I could go on for a long time about that. I said earlier that I got lucky, you know, I got lucky at that particular time in the house of God and I had to write about it and i had always wanted to write a sequel, but I was out of medicine, clinical medicine, really. I was just, just being mainly a writer. And, uh, five years ago, as I said, I got this call from NYU medical school. So I said, yes, I usually say yes to those okay. kinds of things. Uh, the essence of this book, really, um, is uh, how to put the, the human back in medicine. 
And the story is very simple. Um, man's fourth best hospital used to be man's first best hospital or man's best hospital. And uh, it has fallen in the ratings to fourth. Yeah. It's a big, it's a huge, big wasp hospital, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people get very nervous and they're looking for someone who can come in and restore not just, oh, and they're also going broke. And so they're looking to, to recover, to, to, you know, to gain, you know, fiscal uh, responsibility again and prestige because they're going down. And having to deal with the, the incredible tyranny of money, which is absolutely at the, at the, uh, at the center of medicine now. And, you know, hospitals run by bureaucrats, not, not doctors at all. Yeah. And um, especially the electronic medical record, which is probably uh, the worst thing that, the, 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 you know, Epic and all of that are the worst things that ever happened to medicine, as long as in this country. And actually, it's all over the world. So that's the, uh, that's the story. We're definitely excited to read it. I mean, these are characters that you wrote about that everyone kind of loves, and we kind of want to see what happens to them. Fats yeah. and we, I'm actually, what I'm kind of curious to know is, you know, you had in the first book, we assume Roy, the main character, was sort of your voice. And I'm wondering now in this book, is that the person that you are, you know, speaking through yourself, or is it now Fats? Do you find yourself associating with another character in the book? Well, it's, it's, that's a great question. Um, you know, I get asked, uh, you know, who's the fat man? And, um, and people, after the book came out, people claimed to be the fat man all over the country. <laughs> one of them was in Nebraska. One of them in Australia claimed to be the fat man. You know? <laughs> and uh, basically, I was the fat man. Gotcha. I was the fat man. Uh, I mean, I wasn't fat. But I, actually, I was fat when I was a kid, so I think that's where that came from. <laughs> uh, I, and it's another side of me or something. And, you know, it's a mixture. And, and, and Roy is, you know, one side of me, sort of the Rhodes Scholar, you know, more uh, unnoticeable one. On the website, uh, which is uh, mansworthbesthospital.com, if you can believe it, JAMA did a, a, a taping and then a terrific video, 30-minute video, of a celebration of the 40th anniversary of the House of God at NYU Medical School. Yeah. And we had five, those five, the same ones that are in the book, we had those five guys, Janet and me, as uh, on a panel. This is great. I mean, we're, I'll tell you this, um, we're all really excited to read the new book, learn about the fate of Fat's anal mirror and what happened to the other characters in the book. It comes out when? November 12th? November 12th, right. Well, we're all really excited to read it. We um, wish you nothing but big fortuna, as Fats would say. And uh, we're going to put all the links up uh, on our uh, Facebook page and, and Twitter, etc. So people will be able to, to find it and get it. And uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Do you guys like podcasts and have like three minutes for me and my podcast and my Two friends? Minutes. 
minute and a half. We started a podcast all by ourselves. 45 seconds? Like three minutes? You're interested. Uh, We're interested. This is our podcast. You can keep moving. I do love podcasts. Oh, The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All antidotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.